Yeah, isn't it awesome? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. Our today's guest says about himself that he's a simple man who loves to sing loudly, dance like no one's watching and enjoy a good nap on a Sunday. Andrew Lasanienta holds a PhD in experience design and he works at George P. Jason Experience Marketing as a senior strategist, where he curates transformative and impactful experiences using systematic processes and tools. What does it mean? Andrew guides strategic and creative teams to think outside the box, make embodied decisions, value human-centered data, and bring their best selves to the table. Focusing on principles of outcome-based design, observation, curiosity, deep listening, ideation, real-time prototyping, and iteration, Andrew creates experiences that bring everything to life. Andrew's purpose is to provide nourishment to those around him, from growing, cooking and serving delicious food that nourishes the body, to obviously designing experiences that facilitate introspection and nourish the heart and soul. He seeks to live a life full of intention, ritual and doing good to others. When he's not designing experiences at work, you can find him at his farm or their farm, shoveling compost, hanging out with chickens, doing yoga, playing the handpan, and we have to explain that, painting and creating something that will make others smile. Andrew, so great to have you with us, with me today, because Wukash is sick. <laughs> oh no, I'm so excited to be here and so sad that it's just you and I, but also happy because I'm really excited to see you. Oh, I'm so <laughs> happy to have you for the few hours with me here. Andrew, I was thinking about asking you something that I, I was always curious about and I never really asked you about. What are your origins? Because Andrew Lasanienta sounds like there's a rich story behind. So my dad's side of the family comes from the Philippines. So Lasanienta is is technically Filipino, but there's a lot of Spanish culture and, and heritage as well in the Philippines. So yeah, that's where my last name comes from, is from the Philippines. And that's like a really beautiful part of my life, actually. Um, I was always really proud to be Filipino when I was growing up. I grew up in Utah, which is largely a very white place. <laughs> and so growing up as a Filipino in a place like that, I felt really proud. Like I was really excited to be Filipino. And my dad took me to the Philippines a number of times as a kid. And I was really excited to be there. And then I also did a like religious service mission in the Philippines for two years Wow! Uh, and le learned the language and was able to spend time in places where my dad grew up and lived and meet all of his old friends. Now, yeah, it continues to be a really special part of life. I speak the language fluently now, and my dad and I get to joke and talk to each other in his native tongue, which is really fun. So, Wow. And yeah. like you said, you were a kid in Utah, which is predominantly white, and you look different. It must shape you in a way, right? Absolutely. So growing up in Utah, there's a very interesting culture there, right? It's like I said, it's largely white. It's also very religious. The LDS or Mormon religion is very, very big there. And I grew up in that religion with my family. Um, and it definitely shaped me 
right? And I think some of the ways that it shaped me for the better is that it pushed me to be different, right? Because I was inherently a little bit different than most of my peers and most of the people around me, both in the way that I looked, but also in the way that I like thought and kind of moved through the world. And so it supported that in a way, because I wasn't one to be like, oh, I'm different. Like, I'm just going to curl up in a ball and be different. I was like, I'm different. And I'm going to be really loud about <laughs> And so, yeah, it like pushed me to, to be different and to kind of write my own story, if you will. And then the religious part was also really interesting because I'm really grateful for that upbringing in lots of ways. Um, because all of the really like sweet and soft and service oriented parts of myself came from that upbringing. I think I've been able to very, I've been able to very effectively take the pieces from the upbringing that had nourished me and keep them and really continue to like, let them grow. And then other pieces that maybe didn't serve me as well. I was able to just like, let go without any hard feelings or, or anything else, um, which has felt really great. I'm really, really grateful for, for Utah and for growing up there. I don't know if I want to live there permanently, <laughs> but I'm grateful for what it's provided me. I'm asking about it because from what you write about yourself, you are very much purpose-driven and uh, mm. our purpose is the story of how we were shaped And yeah. in a way, what you were just saying sounds like the purpose that you are talking about, which is like nourishing others and making others grow and, and flourish, sounds like very much connected to where you come from. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember when I first learned about experiences and designing experiences for people. I was sitting in a class as a freshman and they were talking about the progression of economies, which your article, by the way, on the newest progression of economies, I fully support and love. And maybe we can get into that later. But yes. <laughs> I remember sitting there just thinking like, this makes perfect sense. because I already felt very service oriented in my heart. Like I love to serve and to cook for people and to make people smile and all of those things. And so when I thought like, oh, wow, there's another level to this we can take this service oriented piece of saving people time and really, and maybe I was designing experiences all along and never knew. Right. I just thought of it as a service because that's what my language allowed me to know and say, yeah, I just remember when I learned about experiences in that class thinking, Oh, this makes perfect sense. This is, this is what I live for. This is what I'm already doing. I love to nourish people. I used to say, pay me in smiles. <laughs> I just want to see, see you smile and know that you're enjoying yourself fully. And that's enough for me. Wow. And I think that there's another thing that comes from your story, which is this ability to think outside the box. And this is something that you do professionally. You help others to think outside the box. Well, I mean, I guess, like I was saying earlier, I've always been a little bit outside of a box, right? <laughs> Any box. box. I was outside of, but I was definitely outside of a box, right? I felt different in many ways and I continue to be a, a little bit different in some ways. Uh, I'm a very kind of wooey, I don't know, like spiritually person that's working in a relatively corporate job right now, for example. Again, 
and like feeling a little bit outside of the box. It's just always been something that's driven me. Going back to what we talked about earlier, because I was born kind of into a different space, I guess I just always felt comfortable outside of the box. It wasn't that I needed to step outside of a comfort zone and push myself to do or be something different. I think my comfortable place was being a little bit outside of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think just like most people, I'm also comfortable being you know, similar to other people or being in a group of people and feeling like we fit in and all those things in the day-to-day. But I also feel comfortable just being different. And, and there's beauty in that because I think there's beauty in being innovative that's where the novelty steps in, right? When we're thinking about designing experiences or creating new rituals in life or new ways of doing things. Yeah, I just find so much joy in that newness, right? And in that nourishment of something different. All of those things said, I also am a creature of habit. (laughs) I do also enjoy having like similar things. And maybe I just also enjoy, maybe I'm habitually out of the box. This is an interesting thing because I think that being different is really tricky for a lot of people. And for some, Mm. it is not. I had to grow into it. So it wasn't really as natural for me as it was for you. However, as I'm talking to a lot of people... I can see that they are trying to fit in into a picture that's deeply uncomfortable, but still it Mm. seems like this is a safer place to be than just being different from the pack. And as you flourish in your difference, I'm curious, how do you approach that because like like you said like sometimes you fit in sometimes you stand out but there is a balance there and there are like probably tricks and ways of being that help you make it so that it's also acceptable for the pack yeah that's an interesting insight Aga thanks for the question I want to start somewhere a little bit to the side and then move back towards that one thing that that's coming to my mind is that Maybe it's not about being different necessarily, but it's about being what you truly feel, like standing in your own truth and your own power. If, for example, I just strove to be different, but that felt uncomfortable and silly all the time, then that I wouldn't be standing in my truth. I wouldn't be happy, right? Because if I was just being different for the sake of being different. So I think, it, yeah, what it comes back to is, is what do we really want as human beings What really, truly makes us happy? Where do we really, truly find the acknowledgement and fulfillment? And then following those things. And frankly, in the world we live in, oftentimes, if you do that, you will be different. You will be out of the box, right? Because the world often teaches us to value different things, right? They teach us that we need to value working really, really hard and finding tons of accomplishments in these different places and whatever it may be. And we need to dress this certain way and drive this certain type of car and have a gigantic house or two, right? In order to be successful. And really at the end of the day, it's figuring out what, what do we actually want? Not what's been taught to us, but what will really nourish us. And then if you do that, yeah, you likely will be different. 
which has been coming up for me a lot recently. I've, I've recently really felt not a desire, but a like confirmation of landing or arriving or resting. Like I've done all of these things and now I'm kind of ready to rest and land and arrive. And it's been a really beautiful reflection for myself to think about what is most important now, right? And what brings me the most value and the most nourishment and the most happiness and then allowing myself to seek after those things and not after the things that I think will make me happy or that the world tells me is going to make me happy. And then those things inform my decisions. They inform who I spend time with and where I spend my money and where I spend my resources, where I work, et cetera, et cetera. To bring that back around to your question, it's kind of a delicate one to think about when do we stand apart when do we be really different or when do we like let our true selves shine through and when do we have to kind of follow the pack? Cause I remember when I was interviewing for the job at Cal Poly, I mean, I look kind of different, right? I mean, I have like dreadlocks and like, you know, the lower part of my head is shaved and I mean the dreadlocks alone, I feel like are enough to, to be off putting to some people sometimes, but there's definitely a, a fine line between following the pack and standing in your truth. And to me, I think it's thinking about, we obviously want everybody to feel comfortable. You don't want to put people in a situation where they will feel uncomfortable. And that shifts away from like appearance more to what we would say and how we would interact. Because of course, for example, thinking about language, right? You don't want to be in a situation with all of your friends and you know one of your friends feels you know uncomfortable around certain language then you would of course want to meet those needs and be kind and maybe use more appropriate language around that person or whatever i think the short answer is to always stand in your truth and always be different or be you whatever that means in whatever context to an extent right being appropriate in social situations and all the things <laughs> but then also knowing that people should and and probably will take you as you are. Mm. I think especially when we think about job situations, it's like, just be you. Show them how you work. Show them how you laugh. Show them how you joke and how you celebrate. And then if that's the kind of person that they want in their organization, then they'll bring you in and you'll both be happier. Same thing in a relationship, right? Whether it's a friendly relationship or a romantic relationship. If you just be exactly who you are, then it gives the other people all the information they need to decide whether or not they want to be in relationship with you. Whereas if we try to be one thing or another, or try to be what the world asks us to be, then that can only hold on for so long. And eventually we'll have to revert to what our truth is. And then somebody else, right? Whoever the other party is, is going to be upset about it when they realize it was all a sham. Yeah. By the way, how do the corporate clients react to you then when you enter a room with your dreadlocks and shaved head? <laughs> I mean, we're all virtual now oh, of course. at the moment. So <laughs> yeah. I haven't been walking into any rooms, although today <laughs> I'm going to go into the office and walk into the room with people. So we'll see. <laughs> I guess in an educational setting, it was definitely that way. There were definitely moments where people were kind of like, whoa, like, who is this guy? he's a professor. He's like, this guy's, you know, whatever. So I definitely felt and saw that. But I think if we do what we do well, 
Like I show up in the space and I facilitate and I can teach and I can guide workshops and I can inspire in many beautiful ways or cook beautiful meals or like help people out in really beautiful ways in the farm. And if we really show up in our fullness in whatever it is we're doing, I like to think that what we look like doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it just becomes another expression of who we are. And so similarly, uh, pulling on my work at Cal Poly, I don't think it, it ended up mattering ever. I'm sure that in situations there was some initial shock, right? They're like, whoa, this guy looks very different than what I'm used to seeing in a tenure track professor. But then as they talk to you and as they see your work and as they become more connected to an understanding of who you are as a human being, nothing else matters. It's all about what's on the inside at the end of the day, mm. as cliche as that sounds. I would love to dispute this a little bit. In oh, a, please. In a sense that you are a guy who is bringing the outside the box thinking into the organizations. Having the physical appearance that's so radically different sets a tone, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> And it kind of indicates that, hey, things are not going to be the usual standard default way here. So I think that in a way it can be used to an advantage. Especially yeah, in the- I dig that. <laughs> yeah, I never thought of it that way, but it's true, you know, especially even just getting on a Zoom call, right? With like... <laughs> And no judgment to them as well, but regularly normal looking people. And then if, you know, we're bringing some like fiery kind of spicy news <laughs> to the table, it does, <laughs> it does set a certain expectation. If I started a workshop by like, okay, everybody, welcome to our workshop. Today, we're going to be talking about audience personas, you know, and it was just like, they, then they might be confused. There would be some dissonance like, oh, this guy maybe looked a little bit more exciting and It's not quite as exciting as he looks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I love that. I appreciate that dispute. Thank you for bringing that in. The other thing that you are talking about as your professional job is to create and bring transformations to life. And I mm-hmm. would love to unpack that a little bit because transformations and transformational or transformative design is something that's very, very fresh. Mm. We've been discussing this for some time, but for a lot of people, this is like, what are you talking about? Like you can design an experience. How do you design a transformation or for transformation Mm. really? So how do you think about it? How do you go about it? Well, I think it's worth acknowledging before we dive in that Lots of people use the words transformational experience <laughs> and, and there's a lot here, right? I think it's definitely worth acknowledging that there's a lot to talk about and to dive into. And there are people definitely way smarter than I in this realm. But when I think about transformative experiences or transformational design, and this might sound simple, but it needs to be designed for change, right? It needs to be designed for change like immediately and also in the long term. Some of the folks at Brigham Young University, uh, specifically like Matt Durden and some of his colleagues are doing some really awesome work on transformative design and transformative experiences. 
they recently, well, this was a, a while now, maybe like 2017, 2018, that they published a paper on an experience typology. And you're, you're familiar with this. It's also in Matt Durden's book, Designing Experiences, Matt Durden and Bob Rossman. But they talk about this typology of experiences, right? And it goes from ordinary or prosaic, and it works its way up to, let's see, from prosaic to mindful to memorable, meaningful, and then transformative, I believe. At least that was the last iteration I was aware of. And what's interesting about that is people talk a lot about transformative experiences, but this typology that they created that I align with perfectly and agree with and use in design work, it's progressive and it builds on on the pieces, right? So a mindful experience engages the mind it engages you and makes you think as opposed to a prosaic or ordinary experience that's very autopilot so once the mind is engaged then next moving forward from there when they say a memorable experience so then from there you've got this memorable experience that then focuses on emotion right it touches on the emotions of the human which is important we engage the mind then we engage the heart. So the mind is there, they're focused, they're mindful. Then we can pull on the heart strings a little bit and help them start to feel things and get in their body. Okay, then the next one is a meaningful experience which focuses on learning or discovery. So now they're feeling, they're thinking, they're reflecting. Then they're learning and discovering, right? Discovery and reflection, which are such a meaningful and important part of transformation because I believe that in order to move forward in our transformations or in our progress, we have to reflect backward. So that discovery piece feels really, really important, providing opportunities for people to be quiet, to reflect, to discover. And then from that meaningful experience, then the next kind of opens the door, in my opinion, for a transformative experience. And I don't believe in the book or in the article, do they talk about the transformative experience in that way, that it should be progressing like that. But in my opinion, a transformative experience is going to be much more accessible when we kind of ramp up in that way, Mm -hmm. right? So we provide opportunities for mindfulness, touch on the emotions, give opportunities for discovery and reflection, and then guide towards transformation. And I think Pine and Gilmore talk about transformation or transformative experience being guided, right? It's like a Mm -hmm. guided experience. Is that what they use? Yeah. Which is totally the case, right? Because those experiences aren't given or forced or they are, they're facilitated. And as, as experienced designers, that's all we can do is guide. The same thing with learning, right? I've been teaching for many years. And with teaching, you, you can't force anybody to learn anything, but you can guide them on a learning journey, which I would argue can also be transformational. So if I had your original question, sorry, to bring it back to the question was, how do I think about and design for those? That would be the way, would be focusing on that framework and also acknowledging that not every experience is going to be transformative. That framework is really important to me because it helped outline to the world, or at least to the people who read it, that not everything has to be transformative because I think transformative experiences is kind of a buzzword right now. They make a joke in the book, I think, that brushing your teeth doesn't need to be a transformative experience, right? (laughs) If everything was a transformative experience, we'd be exhausted by like 10 a.m. And so, yeah, acknowledging that not everything needs to be transformative. 
And then also acknowledging that transformation takes time. It's not like we're going to have a one day experience and transformation is going to take place. It's not even like a one week experience and transformation is going to take place. You and I first connected at the college of extraordinary experiences, right? And many people would say, wow, that was a transformative experience. And sure it was, but the beauty of the college is that the immediate experience itself was beautiful and sparked transformation, I believe. But the college did a relatively good job, better than most, I will say, at sustaining the transformation, right? They did monthly full moon calls. We as a community organized reunions. Phil does a great job with the newsletter. Like There are lots of things that continue to invite the transformation to happen or to continue progressing. Yeah. And I think that's really important because you can't have like a singular transformative experience. Maybe you can. I, I, we can't never say never. But I think more often than not, it needs to be sustained over time. How does it feel into a business realm? Because we often talk about transformation as uh, something which is deeply individualistic and personal. And you are in a business context right now. So where does that sort of design fit into this world? You know, I'll be honest, I haven't played with it a lot so far in the business and corporate space. Um, I've only been in this position for like two months now. But honestly, the thing that kind of sucks about this is that transformation and change in a business context often mean changing people's buying habits, which like <laughs> feels capitalistic and icky to me. Yeah. I mean, does that count? I would argue, well, okay, from a clearly definition standpoint, it counts right? If we're talking about change, if we're changing people's buying patterns or behaviors or preferences, then I guess that counts. In my heart and in my soul, <laughs> does that count? No, it doesn't. Because when I think about a transformative experience, I'm thinking about like the transformation of the human being and thinking about the experience and the way that we live and show up in the world, in our communities, for the earth itself. And that kind of change, like really progressive change for human beings. And so I've yet to see it in, in the really big corporate space. And I think largely because, yeah, like, I don't know, we're working with really big clients that are, that are just putting on events and designing experiences. Yeah, largely for pipeline, right? Largely to make money. Mm -hmm. I will say, for example, we are working on a project right now. And And one of their like goals or mission statement pieces was to nourish their main audience member or persona and support them, which felt good. That's not transformation, right? But it was, it was less about pipeline and more about like nourishing people. Still, I think, it, I think it's hard. I think that we live in a world, we just live in a capitalistic society, mm -hmm. right? Where the bottom line is very important. And so, and human transformations aren't necessarily making people a ton of money. Mm. Actually, right? sometimes I mean, they make, <laughs> make them less exactly. money. <laughs> exactly, because it takes a lot of individualized time and effort. I mean, I appreciate the work that's done on like mass customization, but you can't mass customize transformative experiences, in my opinion, right? It's very one-on-one, -on -one, and so the cost is huge in those situations. 
yeah, so I just I just don't see it happening very much in the business space yet. Is there room for that? Yes. Do I hope that it happens in the future? Yes. But we're not quite there yet. It's an interesting thing what you're saying because the word transformation and change is probably the biggest buzzword of the last years. It's not yeah. as often used towards the customers, but it's definitely used as a organizational re- organizational reorganization. My goodness, what am I saying? Mm. But as, a, <laughs> as an internal reorganization yeah. where people change one way of working into a different from waterfall to agile, from orange type of organization into green or teal or whatever. So in business, you can see a lot of change happening internally. The problem is that this change happens without the understanding of the progression that you were talking about. So Mm. people are thrown at change. Yeah. And they naturally resist. Yeah. It seems like it's very top down generally, right? It's like, it's not, they might use the word transformation in organizational change, but it's often, well, Before I speak, I guess I better acknowledge that I don't actually have a lot of experience firsthand in this space, but from the experience that I've had, and if I had to extrapolate that and guess more, it's that someone else has an idea or maybe one person or a person in power has a transformation. We we can't take that from them, right? And they want to share that with the rest of the organization, but it's not often that the organization or the team has a transformational experience. It's that one person does, and then it gets forced on everybody else. Yes. Which I would argue is far from transformation and probably far from effective in the way that it could be. And I think that from what you said before, the major factor in it is that these people who are supposed to transform, they never get the time or the reflection or the incorporation to actually do it. It's true. I think it's funny because the first type of experience, the prosaic one, which is very autopilot, right? It doesn't require any, anything. It's like, that's almost the state that they're working in. It's like, we're just going to give you this new thing and expect you to integrate. Yeah. They don't really provide resources. Well, again, these are assumptions, but it's not really a mindful experience. Um, They're definitely not incorporating it emotionally. Um, they're probably not diving deep into the, into the discovery and giving them opportunities to reflect on how this is better or how the old way was worse and how this could improve. Yeah, and so the transformation just doesn't come. Mm-hmm. It becomes a blanket. It just like <laughs> or, or wallpaper, right? It's like this is the transformation, but it's not really a transformation because everything else is still there. It's just putting a new code of something over the top of it. Yeah. You talk a lot about the value of reflection and introspection in it. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned yourself that you are not for a very long time moving a business context, but I was curious if you were to think about incorporating introspection and reflection, how would that happen? Like I cannot really imagine all the people at a specific hour writing their reflection journals or something <laughs> or morning pages. <laughs> oh, if only that would be right. <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> the way that I've done this previously has been through invitations for 
meditation and for visualization. I used to start most, if not all of my workshops or talks or other experiences in and outside of corporate settings with this type of entering the magic circle or ritual, if you will, because it felt really important for me to help people arrive at whatever we're doing, kind of set their phones and their email and all the other things aside and then pause and breathe, like really intentionally breathe, take three deep breaths. I invite people often to close their eyes and to visualize things and to reflect And I give like time and space for their mind to wander in whatever directions it may need to go, pausing to bring it back to what we're focusing on and giving people time to sit and reflect and be. And it's yielded really beautiful results. It first brings people into the space in a very calm and collected way, away from the flurry of the world. B, it gives them a moment of rest, which many of times we don't have. We're not able to find moments of rest and pause where we can just sit and listen to our breath. And it also opens up their mind to start thinking about clearly and intentionally what is the topic at hand? Who are our customers? Or just how is my day going? Sometimes I don't even have us meditate or reflect on the topic, but just on them as humans or their life or their goals. And that's been really impactful for me as a facilitator and also for people participating, that's been the most impactful way that I've been able to see people start to reflect and open up to the opportunities of transformation. I think that it could be done in other ways. Asking people to do it as homework, for example, like in preparation for a call in, you know, as the teacher in me, that -hmm. would be my wildest dream. I know that sometimes people don't do their homework, but, but I guess <laughs> sometimes, one of my goals is that, yeah, most of the time, but that in these small interactions, because those meditations take like, I don't know, five, maybe 10 minutes max, those visualization experiences. And my hope is kind of that people get tastes of those and say, wow, that felt really good. Like it felt good to pause or it felt good to reflect. And it takes often us saying that, like, take a minute and recognize how you feel. How does your body feel? How does your mind feel? And helping people have realizations around those experiences. Because sometimes we just think that this is how life is, right? We're just used to moving around at a million miles an hour all the time, talking to a hundred different people. But when we pause, giving them an opportunity to pause and then recognize, yeah. I'm, so I'm hoping that as, the, as people feel that from time to time, they will then do it a little bit on their own, right? They're like, oh, that felt nice. I'm going to continue doing that. But that also comes from invitations from us. So to come back to your question, yeah, I think inviting reflection and opportunities for discovery can be facilitated and it just requires a quiet space. There are lots of other ways to facilitate discovery too, right? Um, and I think that creative ways of doing that are really beautiful, getting people to, to move their bodies and sometimes get out of their heads and into their bodies is really helpful. Uh, there was a group that we used to work with and before every meeting, we what did we call it? Dance first, talk second or talk later or something like that. And so at the beginning of every meeting, we would have like 12 to 15 minutes of music that was playing. And it was meant to just get you into your body. 
So people were just meant to move and wiggle or stretch or just do whatever body things they wanted to do so that they were really in their body and not too high up in their head thinking about too many things. And it allowed for really interesting conversations. Uh, drawing, like I like to do a squiggle birds activity where you just like draw little squiggles and then draw a beak and feet on it and make it into a bird. Mm-hmm. Just like silly little things, right? To just kind of get people to get ready to discover and think and reflect. There's another thing that you talk when you talk about yourself, which is helping people to make embodied decisions. And I think that this is exactly what you were just explaining, which is basically getting people out of their heads and into their bodies. And what is the difference there? Well, the body and the mind are both good for a variety of things. Our body is like the vessel that holds everything and allows us to have all kinds of experiences. The mind is also a beautiful space that allows us to to think and to process and to do things in ways that we wouldn't be able to do. I think generally speaking, as human beings, many of us live in our heads. We're lying down for bed at night and our mind is still racing, thinking about what we're going to be doing or what we need to do or what we didn't get done or what we did get done. When we're working with people, we're often thinking very much about A, B, or C. We're just often in our heads. And sometimes you'll hear people say the phrase like, oh, I'm just so in my head, which can often equate to like, oh, I'm worrying a lot, or I'm being anxious, or I'm thinking too much about this, etc. So when I say we're in our head, it's just like, that's where we're focused in this thinking space. The body is a feeling space, right? And when we can be more embodied, it lets us tap in more into what we feel and a little bit less of what we're thinking about. So for example, on a day that I might feel like rushed, if I pause for a moment or if I'm feeling excited or angry or any of those things, it might just be something that's in my head or a story that I'm telling myself in my head. Right? If I pause for a minute and do something that helps me feel and get into my body, like whether that's doing yoga or maybe playing a little bit of music or even just taking three deep breaths and like touching my chest or my stomach or my body somewhere, it helps me pause for a moment and say, okay, hold on. What are you actually feeling? What are you actually feeling? Not just what are these stories that are swirling around in your head? I think it's easier to feel very connected to what you're feeling, that it's coming from you, whereas the stories that are swirling in our head can be very influenced from external spaces. So I really like to get people to move their bodies and feel what that feeling feels like. Like, what does it feel like to touch your shoulder or to move and wiggle? And I'm like a pretty wiggly human too. I just like like to move around a lot. Our listeners cannot see it, but Andrew is moving (laughs) all the time all the time <laughs> yeah and like not in a fidgety way right but no, just in a no, way that feels all. good to yeah. to remind me that i have a body and that it's awesome and that it allows me to do so many of the things that i do that is a clear way to distinguish i think the body is a feeling space the head is a thinking space and i believe that when we're more in touch with what we're feeling we're then able to think more clearly in our mind mm-hmm. Right. If we're just up in our head in floaty, floaty space, then we can often just like 
do just that, float away into thought land. But if we can pause for a minute and ground into what we're feeling, I find that it provides me more clarity to align and straighten out what I'm thinking. And I will say like tying into another thing that's really important to me, which is our farm and farming. Mm -hmm. There's lots of ways to be embodied, right? And to get into your body and yoga and dance and some of those things are one way, but some people like to go for runs or go for a bike ride, being at the farm and digging and like having your hands in the dirt and doing other physical body related things is, is another way. So really maybe for our listeners pausing and thinking, what are ways I like to move my body? Or what are ways I like to feel my body, right? What are ways I like to engage my physical body in ways that feel good for you? And then we can make a ritual or a practice out of pausing at certain times in our day to feel more in our body so that we can then clarify some of our thoughts. Mm, I love it. I am a person who is too much in my head and not enough in my body. However, I've learned to be more conscious about mm. my body and sometimes it feels like you should do it in a certain way mm. rather than do it in your own way. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's very freeing what you are saying. <laughs> what are ways, Aga, that you like to use your body or what are ways that you feel like you might feel or find more embodied movement? That's a good question. So like one thing that I'm definitely exercising for the last two years is to breathe in a conscious way. And obviously mm. breathing is unconscious <laughs> as, as an activity. But what I realized was that I've been holding my breath a lot uh, oh, as a sign of blocking emotions. And this is all the upgrowing story uh, of you should be a certain way and shouldn't be in a different way. So I've been practically for the last two years relearning how to breathe, <laughs> which sounds oh, weird. Beautiful. And this is something right now that I default to when I'm feeling them too much in my head. So I'm going and checking where is my breath. Mm. Ukash is always laughing because my briefing teacher told me like you have to brief from your bum <laughs> and, and it's a lot of true in this and he's saying okay like are you briefing with your bum I'm saying yeah I do <laughs> so this is certainly one way of doing this the other thing is that I love walking this is something that I've mm. always liked a lot and I had this tendency of going for a walk and being in my head. So like, you know, you kind of mm. walk unconsciously, you put yeah. your feet one in front of the other, but the actual walking is unnoticeable. And right now I also learned to get to a point where I am thinking, okay, like I'm walking, what does that mean? And feeling the walk rather than just keeping on thinking about something. And the yeah. fascinating thing about this is that I often go for a walk when I am stuck in my writing. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, like this is like a lot of things going on in my head, but they are stuck there. So when I manage to focus on the physical activity of walking and stop thinking for a moment, suddenly the shut door opens and suddenly there is an answer to mm -hmm. whatever I was struggling with. But if I were to 
keep on thinking, probably I would have never, or I, it would be a struggle to arrive there. I think they would have arrived, but it just, you know, took me forever and would be painful. But there's another thing that is absolutely fascinating and important for me in terms of embodiment. And this is prototyping, which is another thing that both of us do quite a lot. And, uh, you know, like this, the theme for this season is do, <laughs> and it comes yeah. from an event that you were a witness to, which was my do not talk. Yep. <laughs> Shout out to we Joe Biden. We still Biden. say that all the time. <laughs> do not talk. We still say that. Yeah. But with the double interpretation of it, uh, I'm still a little bit embarrassed about how imprecise with the comma I was there, but no, it's not about this. Anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that a lot of people have a huge problem to move from conceptualizing things in their mm. heads or even on the post-its. Post-its are easy, yes. but if you yeah. have to build the thing, if you have to draw the thing, suddenly a lot of people go like, ah, into a panic mode. Why? Yeah. <laughs> this is a really awesome segue because it, it lays over it perfectly that people want to be in their heads. It's easier, that's why. It's easier to be in your head. It's easier to have a conversation about a thing. It's easier to brainstorm and like write stuff on a board and ideas. Those are the easy ways out. And in a productivity focused society, we feel productive when we do those things. But then like getting into your body or like actually doing it with your hands, right? Building the thing, the prototype is harder. It takes a little bit more effort, not much, but enough for it to be too hard. And I think that's why. I think as a society, again, assumption, but we are getting used to getting things quick. We want quick productivity. Amazon delivers something to my house in two days or one. Like we want things quick. So when we have to like pause and they're like, you want me to build something like that could take me a couple of hours or a couple of days. People are like, oh, I don't really want to do that. What if we just brainstorm more and then we'll just send it off to the next people? Similarly with the breathing or the walking, right? It's like, I could just sit here and think about things for an hour or I could pause and take some deep breaths, jump out of that cycle. So yeah, I think it just takes a little bit more effort. Um, it's also different. And as we talked about at the beginning of the call, we're scared of what's different, mm. right? We're scared to think about what it feels like or to like build something with our hands because maybe we're not used to that. But we are not used to it anymore because as kids, Correct. we were always building stuff. We weren't thinking, we were doing things. So in a way, <laughs> I think that this should be this primary behavior carved in our brains that we should default to really, right? It's so true. I was just, I was laughing because I was imagining a group of little like five and six-year-olds brainstorming. <laughs> like, that would never happen, No, right? That would never happen. You're never going to see a bunch of little kids in a group talking about what game they should play next. They're just like playing the game. Yeah. Or they're building the sandcastle or they're building a tree fort. They're not having a brainstorm sticky note session about what the tree fort should what look the like plan and what pieces is. it should have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And just like many other beautiful things in our lives, I think that's just moved out of us in some way. It's like as we grow up and as we're taught to be certain ways and as we're taught to do certain things, we lose that. 
just like with our creativity oftentimes and the way that we doodle or do art or play make-believe and imagine, right? Those things are kind of worked out of us and replaced by other things. So one thing that you've noticed with all this thinking processes that we tend to fall into is that they are based or they imply productivity or efficiency. Mm. And I think that we fell as a global society into a trap of productivity. Mm. And the things that we've been talking about, which is designing experiences, they are the opposite to productive and efficient. They are about savoring the situation, being in the situation, learning from the situation. And this productivity madness is like the biggest obstacle that we are facing these days, isn't it? Yeah, it's the root, I think, of many of our values issues, right? It's this productivity and success, and it ties into the capitalism piece. Like, it has our values a little bit skewed speaking for myself, right? It has values a little bit skewed as to what really feels important for our lives and for our communities and for the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that brings me to what you already mentioned. So this article of mine about the sixth stage of economic progression, but before we, we get there, I wanted to have this reflection that both you and I, we've been trained as designers to think from a perspective of human centricity. Mm -hmm. And I have a problem with both those words these days. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, why human? And mm -hmm. why should there be a center in the first place? What's your take on it? First of all, I agree with you. I, I think I know where you're going with your qualms with those two words. And I think that I agree. But to answer the question and to support it before we squash it is first human because I think humans are really important. We are important human beings. I love being a human and I'm grateful for all many of the humans that I know, including you. And I think the reason that human-centric has felt and continues to feel so important is because it's the alternative to what it was before, which was like money-centric or growth-centric or people are focusing on building products or events or whatever it may be. There's, there's lots of focus on all these outward things. And this idea of being human-centric helped to bring all of that madness down to focus on the actual human beings that were participating or buying or whatever. So for me, human-centric was beautiful in that it was focusing on the user, the participant, the person, the human being, less about the sales or the money or the like where food and beverage is, just like all of these things, right? And it was like, let's think about human beings and their needs, which feels better than saying, let's think about this rich person and their need for more money. <laughs> that maybe didn't sound great, but I like that it's focused on humans. The centric piece, yeah, I, I agree with your qualms that it could be not human-centric necessarily, but 
even focused is the wrong word. Uh, what's a good word that we can use that inquires like there are multiple centers or multiple important parts, right? Because a human can be an important part, but there's lots of other important parts uh, that fit in there. So maybe the centric is, is unimportant. How about human inclusive? <laughs> ah, yes. Human inclusive. Definitely. So we are not cut out of this whole thing, but we are part of something bigger. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Framed in the right way, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So there are like two trains of thought here for me. One is being that, like you said, the economic progression proposed by Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore is very much focused on the capitalistic approach to generating more monetary value, I would say. And my take on it is that in that sense, probably we reach the top. However, there is a different perspective that can be taken, which is more focused on using the possibilities that a company has, an organization has, in order to alter the current state of events, which is in many cases dire, to the preferred one. And in that sense, we as customers have the power of voting with our choices, therefore our money, what change we want to see in the world. Yes, that doesn't increase the monetary value of a business in a sense that you actually probably get less money in a sense that you have to invest into doing something that's you know, that's spending money basically. Right. Uh, and it's not, you know, greenwashing or CSR or anything of these already old approaches that were supposed to feel good and didn't do much change. However, I think that this is changing the perspective from short term to long term in a sense that mm-hmm. we are going from this here and now productivity and efficiency that this quarter or next quarter we are going to have that amount of money and therefore we have the growth that we planned and therefore we are successful in terms of economic value. And instead you go into a much longer perspective of maintaining your customers forever because they feel that they are a part of something bigger than you and them. Yeah. So this is one part. And the other part is that this centricity, I agree with you that bringing focus to humans took it away from money and technology as well, I guess. But right now, maybe that focus is already on humans. It would be beneficial to expand it and say, okay, it's humans and. Yeah. And create a network of, you know, nature, animals, buildings. You know, like, why do we have to build more buildings rather than restore the buildings that we already have? You can take it in any direction that you can think of. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it's a lot. I think it's beautiful technology that we have begun to focus on humans because there was so much to focus on before. And so acknowledging that we have grown and kind of gotten better and we feel comfortable calling it an improvement, (laughs) we've improved. That then gives me hope for more improvement, 
we've recognized that human beings as people are important, which in many cases in the world, we still struggle with that in many ways, many, many ways. But if human beings are starting to become important, what else can be more important? How can we incorporate the earth, basically, and all of the inhabitants on it, whether they be human beings, plants, animals, trees, all the things, right? And how we go about doing that, I am not exactly sure. You sound like you've got a pretty good grasp in pushing us in the right direction, which I really appreciate. And it's going to take, and I hope that it happens, and I want to support it in whatever way that it can, but it seems like it's going to take a very big shift of values for all of the humans, right? All the humans that we've been talking about being human-centric, they inherently value different things and unfortunately value less sustainability and the earth that we live on and all of those things. Because again, we've moved into such like a short-term thinking, right? It's like, oh, well, if I'm however old now, climate change and climate crisis and sustainability isn't going to impact me. And even if we have children, right? I don't necessarily think most people are thinking about their children and the impacts of all of these things on their children. So it's hard to get people to experience transformation about their way of thinking and about the way that they purchase and use resources when it might not affect them immediately or even in their lifetime in a drastic way or in a way that feels really uncomfortable. Did you watch the Just Look Up? Yeah. Yeah. Don't look up. Mm-hmm. Don't look up. Such a great example, right? Of something that's like staring us directly in the face and people are just like, oh, whatever, you know, this is fine until it's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It feels, yeah, sometimes I think it's easy to get frustrated about it because it seems like such a big problem and we are just two humans. And then I also remember that as individuals, we can do our own part, right? There's much that we can do, like writing beautiful articles, like composting our garbage, like making decisions to buy less plastics, whatever it may be, right? If we can change and transform ourselves, then our communities around us can also see that and be influenced by it and change and transform themselves. And we can ripple out a little ways, but it's a big and hard topic. However, you know, like if you look at the food behavior like yourself, I'm a vegetarian. And I remember times when we would go to a restaurant and everybody would look at me like, are you insane? Like you don't want any meat or fish. And right now, if I end up a, in a company, people who order meat, they explain themselves. So they explain themselves to me. And the other thing is that if I end up in a restaurant that doesn't really have anything specific offered as a vegetarian option, they will create something for you and they will be also mm -hmm. very apologetic. So I think that within the last 10 years, I would say, there is a huge yeah. change that happened. It didn't happen in one big event, but it just grew right. very quickly into understanding, okay, like we cannot eat so much meat, A, for the sake of the animals, B, for the sake of the planet. Mm -hmm. So if we have those trends like that one and another one that, yeah. that is happening right now is buying more consciously. I think that this mm. is something that is already 
trendy in a way. You shouldn't buy mm -hmm. so many clothes. You should purchase things that are climate conscious, buy cosmetics from local vendors, don't bring them from the other side of the world and, and so on and so forth. Thrifting. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that there is a lot of things happening, but they are done bottom up. So like, you know, there are like consumers yeah. who are doing these things, but there is not enough space to vote for those choices with our choices. Uh, yeah. And, you know, like I've been doing this research some time ago and we had people, we were talking about sustainability and sustainability behavior. One of the participants said something that really stuck with me, which was that companies should make sustainability a unavoidable. But the other thing was like it's irresistible. Like, it's, the, it's irresistible. Yeah, yeah, it's the baseline. Yes, exactly. So I think that there is a potential there, but we have a little bit of a chicken egg problem here in this respect, <laughs> right? <laughs> so if you consider all of this and your role as a strategic designer at your company, is there anything that can be done now? And, you know, I know that probably to the major extent, the answer is no, because the clients are not quite ready for it yet. But I'm curious, is there a way to trickle first drops of this way of thinking into how we talk to business clients? Definitely. I think the first thing that comes to mind is that we often think about, for example, if we're thinking about a customer journey and often with those touch points on a customer journey, we're thinking about budget considerations and we might put in there like, okay, this touch point looks like this, like high cost or low cost in virtual hybrid in person, whatever, but including indicators of climate impact for certain things, I think could be a really simple way to start mm -hmm. to include just to get their minds thinking. Right? It's like, okay, well, doing a gigantic expo with all new stuff, what is the impact of that? Or what is the impact of hosting a trade show versus hosting a pop-up experience? Mm -hmm. And kind of helping them start to see what is the impact compared to like the ROI or whatever types of key indicators they have. I think just beginning to think about that and put that in their radar is one way. I think another way is to have it be part of the conversation, right? When you're doing some of your initial brainstorming and ideation and prototyping, thinking about ways that you can do it in a more sustainable way, right? And we can use data to back that up, that there are a lot of people in the world that care about green, sustainable uh, experiences and who will let their choices be influenced by the level of sustainability of the brand. Yeah, just starting those conversations early, right? Saying like, what are ways that we might be able to create a more sustainable, climate-friendly experience? And I think it probably honestly just comes from the strategists and the creatives, right? We have to kind of push those conversations because, and not push even, I think push is the wrong word, but just invite those conversations. Because at the very least, the clients might say, no, thanks. That's not a priority for us right now. But at the least we tried, yeah. right? And eventually they'll be like, oh, wow. Like they continue to ask about this. This feels important. And at the end of the day, it's indisputable, mm -hmm. right? No one's going to say that doesn't matter. 
they might say we don't have budget for it or it doesn't align right now with the experience, but in the like event and experience space for larger things that we are getting better, right? We're getting better at the way that we use and reuse large builds, for example, like carpet, for example. I remember someone was telling me that carpet at these large expos used to just be rolled up and thrown away. Wow. And now it's being rolled up and donated to like Habitat for Humanity or some of these, you know, other places where they can use and reuse building materials. So I think that we're making steps, but bringing that to the forefront and inviting people to think about it more is always good. Wow. So we've been talking a lot about the impact that we can have as designers and experienced designers onto the world and the clients that you are working with. So if you were to look at the last few months, maybe, what is the thing that you did that you are the proudest of? My answer doesn't really align in the work context. So I hope that that's sufficient. <laughs> the thing that I'm the proudest of is I quit my job at Cal Poly as a tenure track professor in December. And then I took a month off, just a month of sabbatical, which is something that I've never, ever done before. And that was a transformative experience for me in many ways because it allowed me time and space to be really mindful and celebrate what I had accomplished leading up to getting and, and having that job. It allowed me to pause and tune into the emotions that I was feeling as that closed and as a new opportunity was opening up at my current job starting that started in February. It gave me opportunities to discover and establish rituals that were really meaningful for me to live a really full and awesome life. And uh, yeah, it allowed for a really beautiful landing and resting transformation to take place where I'm in a very, very different place today than I was in December. Mm. Still very happy in both of those times, but very different in the way that I look at the world, the way that I'm resourced to show up for my job and for my partner and for my community and for my children. Yeah, it was really beautiful. It felt hard because the job that I'm at now is technically supposed to start January. And so to be able to say, can I pause? Like I, I need to start in, in February or later. That's something that I'm the most proud of because it, it allowed me to show up better than I could imagine in all of the most important places. So cool. Yeah. And we rarely give ourselves the time and the space to align with ourselves, right? Totally. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'll take a day off or I'll go on a retreat this weekend or something. But, you know, to take a month felt, felt really good. Mm. What are your tricks to get things rolling? I think first it's important to reflect and understand what is most nourishing for your mind and for your body and to do those things first every day. Don't wake up and work first every day or wake up and answer emails first every day or something that can be draining, but figure out like at the end of the day, when you're sitting in your chair and you're like, Oh darn, I really wanted to do this, but I don't have enough time. Whatever that thing is, do that thing first in the morning. So for me, yoga is really important to stretch and move my body and to have a clear, meditative, quiet mind space. And so since it's 2022, my partner and I both wake up in the morning and start our day with 22 minutes of yoga uh -huh. every morning. <laughs> before we check our phones, before we do anything else, we just roll out our mats in the bedroom and do 22 minutes of yoga. It is 
amazing. It just starts my day on a completely different level every day. Super, super beautiful. So you don't need to do yoga every day, of course, unless you really want to. But yeah, just thinking about the things that are most important that really nourish you and make you happy and do those things first. Or write down a list of things that make you happy. Like for me, it's serving people or going to the farm or doing yoga or painting or playing the handpan or all these things. So when I make that list, it's like, okay, I need to make, I do yoga first thing in the morning. What of these other things can I make sure I integrate into my day so that my day is awesome? So integrating things that make us happy. Another thing that I like to keep in mind about getting things done is having a top three. So I create a list of like my top three things that feel important for the day. And I focus on those and nothing else. And email is often not on that list. (laughs) Um, Because the, the book Deep Work is a huge inspiration to me. And so trying to have really uninterrupted, focused amounts of time where I'm working on a project and leaving like text messaging email, Google chat, whatever it may be closed or on do not disturb or elsewhere until a specific time is really important. That's how I get things done is we live in such a distracted world with so many notifications and things coming in all the time that finding undistracted space is really important. I also appreciate being able to stop at the end of the day, signifying maybe at 5 p.m. or at some whenever time, that's when I'm done working. And we can have a closing ritual, close the computer and leave it alone, not working through the night. And sometimes, you know, if there's something that's due tomorrow, make sure that's the first thing that I do in the day so that it can be done and I can be ready for tomorrow. And then everything else after that is just extra. Eat really good food. Oh my gosh. Speaking of embodied experiences, like we only get one of these bodies. Mm -hmm. We got to put really good food into it. So eat really good food and enjoy the food. Enjoy cooking it. If you don't enjoy cooking, pause and like watch some cooking videos and make it fun in some way. But yeah, really enjoy the cooking. Our dear friend Leon was staying with us recently. Uh Yes. And um, we just had so much fun in the kitchen, just creating beautiful food. It's such a joy. It's such a beautiful way to gather and be with people and bring so much happiness to my life. I'm hungry yeah, now. I, are, <laughs> I know it's time. Those are, those are some of my some of my ways to get things done. Take care of yourself and your body, and then everything else will come. <laughs> you already mentioned the book Deep Work. Is there any other book that you would recommend to our listeners about just getting the right stuff done? Oh man, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, in terms of getting the right stuff done. Deep Work is probably my number one book. It's amazing. Just the way that it reframes how we work, when we work, etc. Really, really beautiful. I'm reading a book called The Anatomy of Peace right now, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Just thinking about conflict and the way that we work with people in peaceful, beautiful ways. It's really, really awesome. I don't feel like a conflict-heavy human in general. (laughs) You are Um, not. (laughs) But but this book is really helping me think about the way that I interact with people and approach problems. And it's, it's really, really good. Andrew, thank you for this beautiful conversation and spending this time with me. Such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. 
We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. Now I'm going to have to pause and actually remember. Ah, okay, here we go. I remember.